Mark, hello. How are you? I am as good as I can be under the circumstances. Thank you. I hear you. I hear you. You know, so the last time you came on the show, you also talked about the Supreme Court with us then. But if I recall correctly, you ended by telling me that the court and its justices are always so unpredictable and just to keep your eyes peeled because who knows what could happen next. And uh, you are, my friend, still correct. (laughs) How does it feel to be right on that? I suppose mortality is the most unpredictable justice of them all. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, Misconceptions versus Reality. A closer look at the Supreme Court. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders, and you are listening to It's Been a Minute. You know, every week feels so full of news. But this last week, it felt like too much news, coming way too quickly. And sometimes when all these headlines are coming at you that fast, we all can get some of these stories wrong. So this week on the show, we're going to slow down and talk about a few misconceptions from this last week or so of headlines. We're going to spend the entire episode breaking down a few big stories. RBG's death and the future of the Supreme Court, a record fundraising week for progressives, and a scandal at an immigration detention center in Georgia. We're going to start with the Supreme Court. Liberal Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last week, and now there are a lot of questions about who will replace her and who should get to make that choice and when. But with this entire conversation, there are also a lot of misconceptions surrounding the court. One, that it's actually supposed to be above politics, or that at some point in our history, it was apolitical. Another misconception about SCOTUS that I myself had was that it was always made up of nine justices. I talked with Mark Joseph Stern. He covers SCOTUS over at Slate. And he said that's just one of many things that we've kind of gotten wrong in our recent discussion of the court. So there has been some chatter. Well, not just chatter. A lot of conversation that for the left to fix this, should Trump get a conservative justice confirmed, Dems in response, in their eyes, need to add one or more justices to the Supreme Court. Gotta be real with you, man. I did not know until this week that it wasn't always nine and that you could just like add them if you want to. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So the Supreme Court originally had six justices. Uh, There is nothing in the Constitution that sets the number at nine. The Constitution doesn't set a number at all. And so Congress has uh, kind of messed around with how many justices should be on the court. Um, It has been as few as six, like I said, and as many as 10. And the reason why there were 10 justices is actually politics. (laughs) Mm. Basically, during the Civil War, war, there were way too many pro-slavery Southerners uh, and Confederate sympathizers on the Supreme Court. And so Congress just went ahead and added a 10th seat so that Lincoln could appoint somebody loyal to the Union to dilute Mm. the votes of those Southerners. And it worked. I mean, like court expansion does work. After the Civil War ended, we all know, of course, Lincoln was assassinated. He was replaced with Andrew Johnson, who was a utterly racist buffoon. Uh, Guess what Congress did? It took seats off the Supreme Court. It subtracted three Mm. justices from the Supreme Court so that Andrew Johnson could not make any appointments. Andrew Johnson leaves office. 
Ulysses S. Grant fills the White House, and guess what happens then? Congress adds those seats back. It brings the number back to nine, and it has stayed at nine ever since. Okay, but it has not stayed at nine because the Constitution says so. It has stayed at nine because Congress has said so. And all Congress has to do to change that number is pass a law by majority vote signed by the president that says we are adding seats. That's it. No one seriously doubts the constitutionality of that. Wow. So we know that it's lawful for Democrats to expand the court should they have the numbers after the election. Is it popular? You know, FDR tried to expand the court uh, when he was president, and Democratic and Republican lawmakers opposed it. The public hated this idea. What do we know about what Americans think about a potential expansion of the Supreme Court? Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously true that FDR tried and failed to expand the court and that it was super unpopular. And historians have debated the reason for that uh, failure for a really long time. I I think the consensus is that one huge error FDR made was concealing his real goal. Okay, he didn't come out and say, we need to add justices because the current court is destroying the New Deal and destroying all federal laws that help poor people. He pretended like the justices were too old and that they were basically senile and that he had to sort of save them from themselves by adding more. And it rested on some very stupid lies. If we try to expand the court today, if Democrats come out and say we need to add seats, they've got to do it honestly. And they've got to explain squarely to the American people what the threat is and why they feel an obligation to counteract it. I do not know how well that will poll. I can tell you right now that a a sizable majority of Americans, including many Republicans and independents, do not think that Trump should be able to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat, right? So we already have a huge portion of the country saying the next president or whoever wins in November should fill this seat. I think a lot of those people are going to be radicalized if Trump fills the seat anyway. And they're going to say, this is illegitimate. Uh, The Democrats need to do something as a kind of tit for tat just to restore some kind of balance on the court. Uh, The preliminary polling on court packing shows that it is not yet in favor. Uh, It does not yet have the favor of a majority of Americans. Like, we just have to be honest, it is not yet the most popular idea in the country. But I think that the the sentiment is changing every day, and I think it's moving uh, very quickly toward court expansion. Yeah. I'm not sure how to best word this question. It's perhaps a more philosophical rumination. But I find myself as allegedly, uh, you know, stone-faced, hard-nosed journalist, when I'm thinking about the court and reading these stories, I am falling into this mythology that the court should be above politics and it is somehow more sacred than the rest of D.C. and that it is veneer, it, it's it's extra special and like above the fray. And for whatever reason, that, that number nine, nine justices, feels sacred as well. Why do you think I feel this way? And do you think Americans still have this strange belief in the... What's the best word for it? The sacred nature of the court. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Americans by and large do seem to have that belief. And and if you look at how the court was polling in in its most recent term, uh, a pretty big majority of Americans said they they approved of the court and that they, they viewed it as basically above politics. 
Um, I think there are a couple reasons for that. First, I, I think that the median justice for a long time has been kind of center right and has generally given both sides enough victories to make them feel satisfied. So there's just been this kind of balance that for a casual observer makes the court feel fair-minded and nonpartisan. Uh, I also think that there's just the trappings of the court, the big marble palace that they work in, the beautiful the red velvet curtain, the robes that they, they go gowns, onto the court. beautiful gowns. They are wizards, right? These people are wizards. <laughs> they are wizards among men. And they do a really good job presenting themselves as wizards who do not engage in partisan squabbling. And, you know, I, people laughed a lot about the, the notorious flush, right? We all heard a toilet flush when the Supreme oh, yeah. Court shifted to, to arguments over the phone. Um, I don't think that John Roberts laughed at that at all. I, I think John Roberts probably saw that as a pretty serious threat uh, to the yeah. court's public image because we are not supposed to think about the justices' bowel movements. Okay, we, we are and not also, even supposed no one to consider snitched. that. None of them snitched on the other ones. There's a loyalty among that band. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and we like we are not even supposed to consider the possibility that the Supreme Court justices poop. Okay, that is just, <laughs> you know, I, I really do believe that when we turn on the TV and see senators screaming at each other, and then we tune into oral arguments and listen to fairly reasonable and dispassionate debate, we, we see a real difference. And we think these senators are driven by politics, and these judges are driven by something else. They are doing something different from politics that we have decided to call law. Mm. You know, but what I hear you saying in other parts of the interview is that the Supreme Court has kind of always been political? Yes, absolutely. Okay. From the very start. Okay. Um, okay. And, you know, I, I don't think that any fair-minded observer of the court can debate that. I think what we could say is that there are instances in which the Supreme Court has risen above politics. Uh, I'm thinking of the decision forcing Nixon to hand over the White House tapes, right? Um, where, where you do see justices shed their partisan allegiances. But I think that in super high-profile cases, that is the exception and not the norm. And if you go back to pretty much the very beginning, a lot of these early Supreme Court cases involved petty partisan squabbles between presidents and Congress or members of the executive branch. And the Supreme Court kind of intervened and just decided that the outcome would be the one that they preferred, not just as judges, but as partisans. And that is how the Supreme Court has functioned most of the time throughout American history. And we just aren't taught that in school because I think it makes a lot of people feel the sads. It makes me feel the sad. I'm thinking about like Schoolhouse Rock and it's yeah. just like, this is not that. This is not that. So if this plan to expand the court goes ahead, how does it not undermine whatever trust is left in this institution? How does it not just then become an all-out arms race where every time a chamber flips, they're trying to add or take away more justices. Yeah, I mean, obviously that is a, a real possibility, and I think we should be candid about it, um, that this could be the beginning of the end of the court uh, as it stands today as this um, you know, body full of wizards that basically sits as a super legislature and gets to decide what Congress and states can and cannot do. But, you know, I think there's also a future in which the far right loses its grasp on the Republican Party. The Republican Party becomes a genuinely multiracial coalition. It 
drops its extreme hostility to voting rights and democratic norms. And perhaps both sides come together and shake hands and say, okay, Republicans did this, Democrats did that, and now we're calling a truce. I, I do think that's LOL, possible. LOL, you funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the more likely outcome is delegitimization. And I think that we need to listen to really smart people like Jamel Bowie, my former colleague now at the New York Times, who says that could be a good thing. There is a silver lining there because the Constitution – arguably does not actually give the Supreme Court the power to do everything yeah. that it does, right? Like it's They pretty... took the power themselves. I remember Marbury versus Madison. Exactly. I remember a, that. A deeply partisan case, by the way. Um, but, you know, in Marbury, the court said, okay, well, we've just decided that we have this power of judicial review, and so we're going to use it all the time forever. Um, and that is not necessarily spelled out in the Constitution, and I think that what's happened, especially over the last few decades, is that the, as Congress becomes more gridlocked, as Congress loses its ability to do anything, the Supreme Court has stepped in and it has really filled in the gaps. And it has made a lot of policy decisions for this country. Um, and mm. it has kind of taken the burden off of Congress to do a lot mm. of lawmaking. And so what, what people like Jamel argue, and I think there's a lot of uh, validity to this, um, is that if the court is delegitimized, it will return constitutional decision-making to the democratic branches. And that hmm. is a good thing. The people who are making these incredibly important decisions should be accountable to the people. They should be elected by the people. Uh, they should be part of a more transparent and representative body. They should not be wizards in robes. They should be politicians because that is really what the constitution envisions. And it is just not the country that we're living in today mm. this episode of everything you think you know about scotus is wrong was brought <laughs> to you by mark joseph stern thank you sir <laughs> always a pleasure it. thanks so much thanks again to mark joseph stern he covers the supreme court for slate coming up we'll talk about all that money progressives raised after rbg died and see if it actually does anything at all you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, who makes shoes, socks, and undies that are not only comfy, but also carbon neutral. Their average carbon footprint per product is equal to running five dryer loads or driving 19 miles in a car before it's offset to zero. They measure these things because you can't reduce until you know what you produce. With Allbirds, feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at Allbirds.com today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Macmillan Podcasts with Driving the Green Book. Award-winning broadcaster Alvin Hall and activist Janae Woods-Weber take you on a road trip from Detroit to New Orleans, offering sharp insight and powerful testimony from Black Americans who used the Negro Motorist Green Book during the height of segregation. Hear both heartbreaking and inspiring stories that give critical context to life as a Black American today. Listen on Apple wherever you get podcasts. Activist Aaron Dorr tells his flock of pro-gun followers on Facebook that he's tirelessly fighting for their Second Amendment rights. But if that's true, why do so many pro-gun Republicans hate him so much? Aaron Dorr is a scam artist, a liar, 
and he is doing Iowans no services and no favors. Find out on the No Compromise podcast from NPR. All right, by now you have probably seen those staggering fundraising numbers in the aftermath of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Democrats and progressives across the country, they gave more than $100 million in the days after RBG passed. And it all came through a site called Act Blue. It's like a Venmo for the left. Act Blue is a payment processor that all Democratic candidates use. That's Julie Bikowitz. She's a national political reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I talked with Julie about what all that money means and what it can actually do. That money went to a mix of all sorts of candidates up and down the ballot from Joe Biden all the way down to state, local officials running for office and then all sorts of justice groups, democratic groups all across the country. But Julie told me there's one big misconception around all these donations. This assumption that all that money will do anything to change who actually replaces RBG. There's just not really strong evidence that any of this money will affect the immediate conversation about the replacement justice. And that is because money is an expression of anger that Democrats have, an expression of passion, but it doesn't change the fundamentals of the Supreme Court vacancy and the fact that Republicans control the Senate and are moving ahead um, to pick a replacement just in the next couple of weeks here. Yeah. So there is a potential that all of this money being given it, you know, might flip some seats in the Senate or help keep some Democrats safe this November. But besides that, there's something else that comes out of these fundraising bursts. Um, a lot of political organizers or campaigns get a bunch of emails and addresses and phone numbers and debit card numbers, right? <laughs> That's right. It's um, in addition to the raw cash that something like this will provide. Giving money also, in most cases, gives away personal information about yourself. And it makes it easier for groups that you support and groups that are aligned with groups that you support to contact you in the future. So that could be important when it comes to things like get out the vote as we get closer to election day. Okay. So then could a fundraising push like this one around RBG's death, does it also potentially bring in new voters? You know, these people give money for the first time because they're really distraught over the week's news. That, in turn, is used by organizers to push them to register. Will we see that? There is a lot of evidence that giving political donations makes you much more likely to vote in an election. And so because if you're passionate enough to give money to a candidate, if you're passionate enough to give money to a cause, you're typically going to be passionate enough to be persuaded to go vote come election time. Active voting really does make a difference in a way that giving a couple dollars doesn't necessarily. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bigger picture about what all this money can do and how that might be changing over time. From what I can recall from college as a wee baby poli-sci major, hi, Dr. Andrade, um, the bulk of money raised by politicians and parties, it goes to TV ads. Is that still the case? It's still definitely the case that TV is king. It's one of the most expensive undertakings that any campaign will have. 
costs lots of money and the reason that they're still so important and still so much of a tool for candidates and uh, groups is that they reach the most number of people people sitting still? at home watching television yeah it's true I'm thinking and about me like i'm netflix <laughs> first you know i don't get commercials anymore yeah, that's true. It's changing. But if you think about it, you know, most voters still skew a little bit older. And mm. most people who are still watching traditional television also skew a little bit older. So it's just the best way for the candidacy to connect with people who might go vote for them come election time. Yeah. In terms of our national politics, I kind of have this feeling that money and having a lot of it is just not as predictive of a win anymore. I'm thinking about 2016. Hillary Clinton out fundraised Donald Trump two to one. He still won. Right now, Joe Biden is out fundraising Donald Trump hand over fist, but the race is tightening up. Like, are we in a space now where we need to just stop believing at all that the one who has the most money always wins. Uh, that's never been the case, but is, it, is that even more the case now? Well, it's uh, it's interesting for me as a person who focuses on money in politics, and I have for almost a decade now to admit this, but I, I think you're absolutely right. It is becoming less and less predictive. You know, no candidate out there wants to have less money than their opponent, but there are all yeah. sorts of examples all across the country of candidates raising huge kind of crazy amounts of money and then not not winning. You know, think about Beto O'Rourke in the Texas Senate race. He set all sorts yeah. of records for online fundraising and didn't take that Senate seat. Lots of examples in the 2020 Democratic primary, uh, including Bernie Sanders for the for the second time in a row, raising huge amounts of money online, um, but not necessarily translating that into electoral wins. So certainly money is important, but it, it isn't everything. And it's not something that you can look at and say, hey, this candidate has more money, so they're obviously going to win on Election Day. So... I want you to gut check me on a thing that I've been feeling this past week with the death of RBG and all of the fundraising around her death and the court. I just feel like that is not the way our politics is supposed to be. You know, as soon as she died, her death became very political. And then the death of this Supreme Court justice led to a big infusion of more money into politics and you could argue that there's already too much money in politics but then on top of that we saw yet another instance of all of our politics becoming nationalized through this you know fundraising spree on the left you saw people giving across state lines mm -hmm. seeing all of that and seeing this weird fundraising palooza with rbg's death it seems like it's some bad trend lines for american politics, American government in the like schoolhouse rock sense of the word, no? I see what you're saying. I think, you know, a couple things here. One, okay. again, it just goes back to people across the country wanting to take some sort of action. And the yeah. death of someone who is so well known and so well respected, even just a couple of years ago, it's hard to imagine that there would have been such an immediate call to action for money. Um, but that has just, it's changed so much in the past three, four years. You know, you don't see as many people kind of 
feeling gross about it. People argue that the stakes are so high that they feel like they need to just move right along um, so quickly. And I guess on your point that, you know, a sense that there's too much money in politics, just a reminder that our country has such a a longer election cycle than most other countries. That's part of why it gets so expensive and other countries look at us and think, wow, this is just seemingly like you're always raising money for elections. You're always in an election. So that's that's one thing. Um, But I think that even across party lines, people would look at small donations as, yeah, there's too much money in politics, but if you're going to have too much money in politics, it's better to have it from small donors who hmm. feel like they're making a difference even by giving 3 or $4 than it is to have corporations through their political action committees and you know people who are able to write huge checks being the dominant players in politics. So... You know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have small donors taking a bigger role in money and politics. Thanks again to Julie Bikowitz. She's a national political reporter at The Wall Street Journal. More misconceptions from This Week in News coming up. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HelloFresh. Get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with the meal kit delivery service, HelloFresh. Make home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes. Go to HelloFresh.com Minute80 and use code Minute80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on the first box. Additional restrictions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. With the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the president is hoping to fill the seat with a conservative judge. And evangelicals who play an important part in American politics have been waiting for this moment. But how did evangelicals become such a powerful force? Listen now to the history of evangelicals on the Throughline podcast from NPR. This month, a disturbing story came to light. A whistleblower who worked at an immigration detention center in Georgia came forward with some serious allegations. She claimed that a doctor charged with the care of migrant women was giving them questionable, if not unnecessary, sterilizations. The outrage was immediate. And also immediate was an attempt to tie the story to a few other things, to link it to the Trump administration and its immigration policies, to link it to a long history of forced sterilization at the hands of the government, often of people from marginalized communities. And there was an attempt to paint the players in the story, the doctor, the whistleblower, in really clear, stark terms. Tina Vasquez is a senior reporter at PRISM. She has been covering this story, and she told me all those impulses we had to tie this story to a bunch of other things. Well, maybe those impulses were wrong. Every time I read about this story, I just say to myself, 
why would a doctor want to do this? Mm -hmm. Why would a doctor want to do this to women that don't need this procedure? What is the incentive for him? Is it financial? Is it, I mean, do we know yet what the motivations were for some of these procedures, these sterilizations? You know, it was really interesting to kind of see people's responses on social media. Like, I think the assumption was because it was so horrific that this was some sort of doctor that had personal feelings about, you know, whether immigrant women should be able to have children. I, I, my gut feeling is that it's not that. My gut feeling is that it's huh. purely financial. Um, really? Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, women I've spoken to, both detained and not detained, say that, uh, you know, I think a direct quote from a woman was that he just sees people as money, you know, that, that so the conditions that are kind of that we're learning about in the detention center, which is that, you know, they were unnecessary operations, right? Unnecessary surgeries. Yeah. He would say you had fibroids or you had an ovarian cyst. I've spoken to women outside of the detention center who are former patients and it was the exact same thing, you know, needless operation after needless operation for financial gain. Mm. You know, you can't see this story and read up on this story and not really think about uh, this long history of forced sterilizations performed on people from marginalized communities, often by some arm of the government. That stuff has a long history in this country. How much is this tied into that? And I guess if you could briefly let our listeners know how widespread that history is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly see it as a part. Um, when I first kind of reported the story and I named the doctor, I outlined what those reproductive injustices look like. And it is, you know, framing that I will say that I kind of regret. Um, I outlined uh. reproductive injustices under the Trump administration. Um, and I really, you know, I a lot of horrific things have happened to immigrants as a result of the Trump administration. But this doctor operating in Georgia has nothing to do with Trump. Um, huh. There are wrongful death suits that go back to the 90s and allegations that span, you know, years and years. But I will say that, you know, reproductive injustice in particular is just kind of baked into the immigration system. Some wow. of the things that I outlined were people like Scott Lloyd, who used to oversee the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which oversees, you know, like migrants who are minors, so under the age of 18. And he took it all the way to the Supreme Court, blocked young women in ORR custody from accessing abortion care because he was Catholic and did not agree that women or people should be able to access abortion. And so even in instances of rape, he wouldn't allow them to access abortion care. Um, more broadly, I also think of, you know, how Puerto Rican women were tested on so that we could have access to the birth control pill. I mean, this is just mm -hmm. what we have done. Yeah. And talking with you about this story, it seems like a lot of the first narratives around this forced sterilization story are either incomplete or flawed. You know, this idea that the doctor was operating purely out of malice toward migrants when in fact it might have been money. This idea that the whistleblower was strictly an angel and the doctor was strictly a villain, that has been further complicated. What is the lesson in all of that for just news consumers and Americans when there's headlines like these that lead us to certain narratives that actually might be a lot more complicated? That's a really good, hard question. I mean, 
What I am learning to do as a reporter and what I hope that news consumers do is to learn that, you know, people have interests for coming forward. They have angles. They have reasons why they do. That has been a thing that I've really had to sit with as a reporter. Um, Like, you know, I am increasingly (laughs) not quick to uplift someone as a hero um, uh. You know, I've been an immigration reporter for a long time, but the past week or so was a very big reminder that um, when we're like consuming news about immigration, we really need to see who is being cited in those pieces and if those people are immigrants and if those people uh. are impacted people. Because, you know, all of us are kind of scrambling to try to figure out what happened in this small town in Georgia, what happened at this detention center. But it's like, women have been waiting for us to catch up and figure this out. Um, And so if you're, you know, consuming news and the most impacted people aren't featured or centered, I I would question the news that you're reading and and whether or not it's it's much more complicated than it seems. Yeah. And I also think migrants have been used as political pawns Mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle for a while. Yeah. And as soon as stories like these break, they become political Mm -hmm. and they become tools for a lot of advocates to say, vote for this person or that person, give money to to this or to that. And there's not that further unpacking of what's really going on and what these women really need. And I think this is a moment for people to question why they glom onto these stories and how and whether it is for their ends or for the needs of the people actually being hurt. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This week has just been so complicated, you know, because you have a lot of people assuming, um, and I may have contributed to that regretfully, that this is a a Trumpian thing, right? That these hysterectomies, that these forced sterilizations are directly related to the Trump administration. I I don't think that's the case. And then in that framing that the reporting that I did like kind of outlined some of those reproductive injustices under the Trump administration, I have learned this week after doing interviews with women who were patients of this doctor outside of detention that that framing made them reluctant to speak to me because they mm. are women who live in rural Georgia who um, were very quick to tell me that they voted for Trump and they support Trump and that this has nothing to do with Trump and my framing made them very reluctant to reach out. Yeah. You know, Tina, so much of the conversation of this last week has been about RBG and the Supreme Court and her replacement and what that means for Roe versus Wade and women's access to abortion. And it underscores this reality for the left that the main focus of women's health and reproductive rights politically, it's abortion. But, you know, Reproductive rights, it's so much more than that. It is also about choosing when or consenting to a hysterectomy. In the case of your reporting, it is about access to birth control or any number of things. How does the nature of America's political focus help or hurt women like the ones that you're covering who have very little agency and a different set of needs than perhaps the loudest voices in these debates over the rights of women? Yeah. When the news emerged that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died, I, you know, had a very strong reaction and had concerns, um, uh, even as an American citizen with lots of privileges. But I I did think about the women that I've been covering. You know, I I report on abortion access a lot, especially across the South and, Mm -hmm. you know, in the borderlands. 
you're essentially border patrol gets to act like you're in a constitution free zone. And I spoke Mm. to abortion funders across the South and abortion providers and how sometimes the South can feel like a Roe free zone. You know, Roe v. Wade is is in effect, it's in place, but there are lots of pregnant people, especially in this area of the country, who cannot access abortion care or who experience insurmountable barriers. Um, I understand, you know, the focus and the importance of the Supreme Court, but I also know that the courts haven't protected everyone. I also Mm. know that court cases don't mean, you know, on the ground that people can access the care that they need. So it's all, it's, we need it all and it's all complicated. You know, we need to think through all of this and and who has access to care. And it's not as simple as, you know, save the courts. That was Tina Vasquez. She's a senior reporter at PRISM. When we spoke, Tina was still reporting the story out. You can read more of her work as it comes out at prismreports.org. Tina, thank you for all your thoughtful work. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey Sam, it's Adrian from Seattle, Washington. Best thing that happened to me this week is just now I finished my first run in almost two weeks because of the smoke. And it's all because of this. I hope you can hear it. That's right, real certifiable rain. I'm completely drenched, but it was totally worth it. Hello, my name is Eva. I'm 73 years old. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. And the best thing that happened to me this past week is that I have been selected by a major pharmaceutical company to participate as a volunteer in COVID-19 vaccine trial stage three. When I heard the news, I was stoked. I am so happy to have been selected. Hello, Sam. My name is Jason Schnur from Kansas City, and the best thing that happened to me this week is my family went on vacation on the East Coast, and I had to go do some business on the West Coast, and we missed each other. And when we both got home, indeed we had. Hey, Sam, this is John from Durham, North Carolina. And the best part of my week is that the young girl that we've been fostering for the past four years, we are finally the legal parents of, and it is just great to have her out of the foster system and for her to have permanency and for us to be a permanent family. Hey Sam, Teresa Davis from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm a school teacher, high schoolers, and we've been in school since August 21st. Yesterday, one of my sophomores dragged his father across the grocery store to come meet me. Usually kids hide from teachers in public places. It is there in the produce section I got to tell a father how fabulous his kid is and watch him tear up. It was the best Friday ever. Thanks for all you do, Sam. Time with you is always sacred. Thank you. I love the show. Keep it up. Thanks. Ugh. Wow. Life can be really good, and the small things can be really big. Um, Hooray for all that good news, for parents and teachers and family missing family and running in the rain. 
Thanks so much to all those listeners you heard right now. Teresa, John, Jason, Eva, best of luck with that vaccine trial, and thank you for doing it, Eva. And Adrian, thank you. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment. Just record the sound of your voice sharing the best part of your week on your phone and uh, send that voice memo to me at samsanders at npr.org. Just email it to samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, stay safe. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs>